Today we're going to be finishing up our series in Ruth. We started in late September, a seven-part series with a couple of breaks in between for some standalone sermons, but we're coming to an end today. We're going to look at chapter four. It's the biggest chunk we'll have taken at once, and we're not going to be able to do equal justice to every part of it. We're actually going to kind of approach it in reverse order. We're going to take a look at the end of the story first. There's going to be a spoiler. We're going to cut right to the chase of what happens with uh, uh, Ruth and Boaz, the, the marriage we've been rooting for, the child that we've hoped that would come to bridge the gap in the line of, of, uh, of the Messiah. So we're going to go to, to that portion first, read the end of chapter 4, and then we're going to backpedal from there and we'll take a look at those final acts of redemptive love on Boaz's part and what characterizes his love. We've been looking at what characterizes God's love that's manifest through his people in this book of Ruth throughout this series. So we're going to look at two other facets of that as we close today. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word, but we're going to break this into a couple different parts today. And so I won't ask for you to stand later. And so I figured it was a good chance to just be able to say briefly that when we at Terra ask you to stand, um, especially since I've kind of chosen, uh, at least for now, to sit while I'm preaching, I like the informality of that, the uh, living room conversational posture that that provides. We, we don't want to do a disservice to uh, the awe and the reverence that I believe we should have when it comes to God's word. And so uh, when we stand, for the reading of God's word, it's to kind of show differentiation between the, the message and the messenger, uh, God's word and the preacher, uh, that we should never stop having reverence for God's word, that we should never treat God's word casually. Um, it's that precious to us. So that's why we ask you to stand. So with that in mind, would you stand now as we read from Ruth chapter four? And I'll give you a chance to turn there. I just know I like to have my Bible in hand. So if you're not already there, Ruth four, 13 through 22. So 13 through the end of the chapter, we're reading the end first. It's on page 265 of those blue hardback pew Bibles if you want to use that, and it should be on the screen behind me as well. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, and she has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhoods gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to take a look at Naomi's story coming full circle first. Uh, this completion of, of this circle from her returning, feeling empty, to now her being full once again. And I'm just going to move through this passage and kind of comment on kind of the key verses here that are, are wrapping up this story in this book. 
and then draw some conclusions about what God's ultimate intent for this book um, is for us this morning. So first we see the marriage and the consummation of Ruth and Boaz. It works out. We'll get to why in a few minutes. We see in verse 13 that the Lord gave her conception. Now this is important because it's bookending uh, the Lord's involvement from start to finish in this story. The only two places where God's name is used explicitly in reference to the events that are taking place are once in chapter 1 and once here in chapter 4. In chapter 1, he's explicitly the one who ended the famine. In chapter 4, he's the one who opened Ruth's womb, gave her conception. Again, we talked about this last week. This is the artistry and brilliance of the author. He's trying to tell us something here. In a subtle way, yes, but sometimes subtle can be even more powerful. It's a way of him saying God has been in control throughout this whole story. That's really important. That's actually kind of like our own journeys, at least mine. It's the rare exception where it is so clearly apparent that the Lord has intervened in some way relative to the rest of my life where it's so much more subtle. And yet those times in our life are reminders God has been involved all along. And the fact that the author has allowed for that to be at the very beginning and end of the story, he's trying to say everything in between was under God's sovereign control and good care of his people. And so that can be encouraging for us on these journeys when it feels like there's long swaths of time that go in between these significant events where clearly God was involved in our lives to be reminded he's still involved even in the moments where you can't feel it or see it. That's one of the things that he is saying to us through the book of Ruth. In verse 14, we see the celebration of the village women coming around Naomi here. And they say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There are actually many people who functioned as a redeemer in this story for Naomi. Ruth really functioned as a redeemer in many respects to begin with through her enduring and courageous love when she went out into the fields to glean and even put her and Naomi in a position to meet Boaz. And then, of course, Boaz being the most obvious one, the quintessential Christ figure, redeemer in this story, who's humble and generous and today we'll see prudent and costly love results in protection and provision for Ruth and Naomi. But it's Obed here, actually, who is functioning as a redeemer through continuing the family line. But the women here, who is it that they ultimately attribute the redemption to? Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. We've known this all along, but with the benefit of hindsight, the women and the community of this village can finally see, yeah, it's God. He's been involved all along. He is the one who's provided redemption here through Ruth, through Boaz, now through Obed. Also, the women uh, pay an ultimate compliment here to Ruth, I just want to point out, when they say, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This is huge. We've seen throughout the story, we've talked about culturally how men had such a prominent role in the society. The sons, Naomi's sons, were the key figures who were missing from the equation early on to, to ensure her welfare, right? Well, it's finally recognized here. Ruth has been better than seven sons, they say, both because functionally she's served in that role. She's now providing a redeemer She's providing a way for Naomi's line to be continued. But more than that, sons in that day were known, as we talked about, I think, in week one or two, to have like 
a, a deep affection and loyalty to their moms. Well, it wasn't just functionally that Ruth served as a redeemer and a son. She was faithful, and she demonstrated God's hesed love like no other to Naomi as well. And that's recognized by the village here. Then we have the presentation of Obed to Naomi in verse 16. We're told that then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Now, it was not uncommon then or now in Middle Eastern culture, as far as I understand, for an older woman to nurse a younger woman's child. However, there was more going on here because listen to what the women of the village say. A son has been born to Naomi. See, they recognize this was implicit in here as Ruth's last act of hesed love to Naomi. She is giving her her son here. Ruth knew that Naomi had felt this great pain to the extent of coming back empty, Naomi had said. Now Ruth was restoring her motherhood and she was making her full again. Naomi's story is coming full circle and Ruth is ensuring that that happens through giving her son to Naomi. Finally, we see the perpetuation of Naomi's legacy of her family line. Not only had Ruth made it possible for, uh, for Naomi's life to be full again, but she had literally resurrected Naomi's family line here, but not only her family line. Unbeknownst, unwittingly to them, she had resurrected the line of the Messiah who was to come. We're told that Ovid was a forefather of David, who's the greatest king in Israel's history, but who do we know would sit on David's throne for all of eternity that would come in his line but the Messiah. So this is where the book ends. And it's meant to point us Yes, to other themes that are significant throughout, but the ultimate theme is God ensures his grand plan of redeeming this world will not be thwarted. If we experienced what Ruth and Naomi experienced in real time, spread out over the course of this year plus, with all of the trials that they endured along the way, it would be so easy to question whether God was involved, to question whether anything good could come out of these tragic circumstances. The main point of this book is to encourage us today that God ensures his grand plan of redeeming this world will not be thwarted, down to the individual that he loves and that he calls his child, you and me if you're a Christian here today. His plans will not be thwarted no matter how dark, how tragic, how difficult your current circumstances seem to be. And he shows that to us through this book of Ruth. So that's the spoiler cart before the horse here. That's where things end. But now I want to take a look at the final acts on Boaz's part that put uh, them in a position to experience this redemption. Boaz's love, which we see both as prudent and as costly here. So I'm going to pick my Bible back up and encourage you to do the same or follow along on the screen behind me. And we're going to read the first seven verses now of Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down, and then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, 
buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Prudence is not something that we might think about in the context of love, as a marker of love, but it is here, as seen through Boaz's very intentional, thoughtful, strategic actions. Prudence is like wisdom, but it's not quite wisdom. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. As I thought about it, my definition for prudence is this. Prudence is being wise to the way the world works as we seek to be obedient to God. Now, prudence's traditional definitions from Merriam-Webster, for example, are good decisions through a disciplined use of reason, shrewdness in the management of your affairs, skill and good judgment in the use of resources, and this one's important, caution as to danger or risk, so disciplined use of reason, shrewdness, good judgment, caution as to danger or risk. Why that last one, by the way? Because we live in a fallen and broken world and we have to figure out in the economy of a broken world what does it look like to be obedient to God. So back to that original definition, I think prudence is being wise to the way that the world works as we seek to be obedient to God. And this is what Boaz is being here. He knew the way the world worked down to the personality and character of this relative of his that he takes into account as he carries out this plan to redeem Ruth and Naomi and to marry the woman that he loved here. So why is prudence important in how we love or in how we are obedient to God? It's important because prudence actually serves to embolden us, embolden us uh, in our love by uh, employing wisdom in order to minimize the risk or the harm that's involved. In, in this situation, the risk is that Ruth and Naomi end up in the hands of a less than noble relative of, uh, of Boaz's. He's suspect of this guy's character and intentions in this situation, and there's risk there that they would end up in somebody's hands who doesn't actually care about them. And so Boaz employs some prudent tactics in order to best position himself to be their redeemer. I think it's important to step back for a moment and for me to say that all obedience involves risk. Risk sometimes might be something we think we need to avoid at all costs at all times, but that's not true. Certainly not true when you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus himself suffered and was persecuted and rejected in his mission, and he said that all who followed him this would be true of as well. So obedience involves risk because you're leaving yourself exposed to the possibility of failure, to the possibility of harm, to the possibility of rejection in some circumstances. And by the way, you could say the same thing about love. In fact, I think all obedience to God is a form of love. You're either loving God through your obedience or by the impact of your obedience, you are loving others. So we could say love always involves risk. But what prudence does, being wise to the way that the world works and appropriately shrewd, is it emboldens love. It makes you more bold in your obedience. Prudence takes into account how this broken world works and it adjusts accordingly in order to minimize the risk of harm. There's never zero risk involved. There's always some kind of risk. 
Let me give you a couple of analogies, perhaps, that will help to understand this. Prudence is to obedience what armor is to success in battle. Okay? And I'm thinking more medieval style than, like, you know, modern, you know, style battle. Wearing armor doesn't uh, guarantee victory, but it improves your odds. And as you wear armor, if you're a soldier, you go out into the battlefield more emboldened to take risk because you've been prudent to don that armor in advance. Another example, which some of you will appreciate and like, pr- prudence is to obedience what scoping out your line is uh, to skiing the steeps. Now, I only know this because I watch lots of videos of skiing pros. I have never scoped out a line because I've never skied anything steep enough to need to do so. Some of you in here have before. But what you do when you're scoping your line is you go to the bottom of a run that you can't really see all the, all the features of from the top, and you get a different perspective from the bottom. That's prudence. And what it does is then, as you go to the top of this run, it emboldens you because you've minimized the risk because you've already evaluated the features and facets of this, of this run you're about to take. So those are some examples of where prudent comes into other facets of, prudence comes into other facets of life and actually makes you bolder in what it is you're called to do. It's a slippery slope, though, or it can be. A knife-edge ridge you have to walk here when it comes to prudence because if prudence becomes central, then you become, I become overly cautious, paralyzed even. Perfect, perfectionists in particular will look for strategies that involve zero risk. But the only strategy that involves zero risk is doing nothing at all, okay? (laughs) But there's so much to be lost when we do nothing, following after Jesus. At its best, though, prudence emboldens you in following Jesus because you're using uh, wisdom to minimize the risk of harm and enhance your chances for success. Prudence should actually encourage courageous and bold love. It actually takes some work, though. It takes some forethought. We can't just throw our minds in the trash as we go throughout life, be oblivious to the world around us in the way that it works. Sometimes prudence is developed and cultivated through past failures that you learn from and then employ the wisdom you learn from that in future experiences. In Boaz's case, he was considerate and understanding of the culture he lived in, how it worked, uh, of the knowledge of this person that he was about to interact with, and he's incredibly shrewd in dealing with this man. Now, I want to unpack this scene for you, and I'm going to draw heavily, actually, from Paul Miller's book, A Loving Life, because I think he does brilliantly in pulling out some insights here as to how Boaz was operating within his culture in a strategic and prudent way. What we're going to see is that Boaz will use several tactics of good negotiating. And not to overstate it, but you could say that God uses Boaz's prudence to play a key role in saving the world. I know that may seem hyperbolic, but God would use Boaz's prudence in this interaction in order to help secure the line of Jesus. And so I want us to see what he does here as he interacts with this primary redeemer in line to redeem Naomi. So five uh, principles of negotiation are in play here. The first one is this, let the other party name the first price. Boaz explains this situation to this guy in general terms, but he lets that redeemer make the first move. 
And when this redeemer agrees to redeem Naomi and the land, it actually implies that he's already named a price. That would come hand in hand. The price isn't mentioned here, but you wouldn't agree without also naming the price to which you were agreeing. This will become very important as we progress through. The second principle is be willing to walk. This is probably the hardest part uh, for Boaz or for anyone who's in a, a situation where you're negotiating. But Boaz truly was willing to do the right thing by letting Ruth go if this redeemer claimed his responsibility. He'd said as much back in chapter 3. He said to Ruth, if, if he will, this guy will redeem you, good, let him do it. Now, he didn't mean good in terms of that was his ideal preference. He meant good in terms of that would be the righteous and right thing to do for this redeemer who is first in line. He, he was willing to walk. Another way, I think, to say it is our obedience will be that much more powerful if we're willing to hold the end result with an open hand. All right, if we're close-handed, then we will begin to resort to our own strength. We will start to try to manipulate our circumstances and the people around us to get what it is that we want, and the outcome of our obedience becomes more important than faithfulness and trusting that, okay, God, you've got this even if this doesn't work out the way that I want. So be willing to walk. Boaz was willing to walk. And his negotiation was more powerful as a result. Thirdly, know your opponent. Not only was this a small town, a thousand people give or take probably, but Boaz and this guy were relatives. He knew this guy probably pretty well. The fact that the, the author of this book uh, actually keeps this redeemer anonymous by name is probably an indication that his character was less than noble this unnamed redeemer, never given a name here. So Boaz was pretty sure he knew this guy's character. He suspects that he's greedy, that he's going to jump at the chance to improve his financial circumstances. And he also knows that this guy is a little bit oblivious, apparently. Listen, remember back in chapter 2 when Boaz comes back from Bethlehem and he asks who this woman is working in the field. And uh, as his servant begins to explain that it's Ruth, oh, he's like, oh, I know about Ruth. Everybody in back in Bethlehem is talking about Ruth and her connection to Naomi and her noble character. But some, not this guy apparently, this guy was clueless. And Boaz leverages this fact um, to his advantage by not naming Ruth uh, as being included in this deal on the first pass. And this, this guy doesn't ask or doesn't seem to take that in consideration for reasons we'll see. Fourthly, play your cards close. Uh, as I just said, Boaz doesn't mention Ruth in this deal at this point. So here's how these scenarios would work out differently depending upon her involvement. If the scenario was merely purchasing the land and then supporting Naomi, an older woman who probably wouldn't be alive for very much longer, it was pretty minimal risk and investment for this guy. He'd be supporting Naomi for a few years in her old age and then he'd get the land. But Ruth being involved in this equation changes everything. Right? Because she was young, and according to Jewish law, this redeemer would be responsible to marry her, to produce offspring for her. Those offspring would end up taking the name of the deceased husband, of her husband. And then when they were old enough, they would actually be given the land. But this redeemer would have to give the land to them. So it would not be a good investment for him from a strictly financial standpoint. He would be losing money in the long run. So Boaz suspected this man was thinking about it from a purely financial perspective, so he hasn't brought up Ruth yet. This is tricky, right? It can feel dishonest. 
But it wasn't Boaz's responsibility to disclose everything upon this first presentation. It was actually this other guy's responsibility to do due diligence in getting the whole picture, maybe ask a follow-up question or two. In any negotiation, in fact, most of you, a lot of you here who are older have families that probably bought a house before. Um, in any negotiation, it's, it's prudent not to disclose everything you know up front. Now, you're not being dishonest when you do that. You're just not revealing all the features up front that some people might find to be undesirable. Miller, Paul Miller gives an example of his book at one point when he was looking to sell his house. There was a, their house, across from the house, was a meat factory. And he asked his realtor, do I need to disclose that information? And, and the, the realtor said, no, that's notorious information. That's so obvious you don't need to mention it. Um, and so that's an example of prudent negotiation, right? So this one's tricky. And I do think you need to be clear in your conscience as you use prudence uh, to be obedient and following after Jesus. You need to know your own motivations, but the scriptures do encourage us to use this thing called prudence. Proverbs 12, 23 says, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Tells it all. Matthew 10, 16, I think the principle here is in play as well. Be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. I realize that for some of you, for some of us, I think for myself, it's kind of uncomfortable a little bit. But I think the question that you need to ask yourself when you find yourself in these types of circumstances is who does my prudence primarily benefit? Is it primarily about my gain? Or does it help and serve the good of others? In Boaz's case, his shrewdness was motivated by love and a desire for the good of Ruth and Naomi. Yes, he wanted to marry this woman, but long before he realized that wasn't even an option on a table. He was already looking out for her welfare. We know this guy's motives. His desire is not selfish. It really is altruistic. And so that's something that needs to be taken into consideration in any interaction or negotiation or situation in which we're trying to apply this world, wisdom of how the world works in our obedience to God. Back to the story. So Boaz makes the proposal, but he hasn't mentioned Ruth yet. Clearly, this redeemer is a bit impulsive. He says yes. He doesn't ask any questions as follow-up, and he bites. And this is where Boaz's brilliance shines in this situation because he was working within a system here of what was called good-faith negotiations. Once someone had named a price in a negotiation like this, then they could not uh, back down from that price. They could drop out entirely, but they couldn't lower the price. That just wasn't accepted at the time. So once this guy found out that Ruth was a part of the equation, the price that he named wasn't worth it to him anymore. And that's what paved the way for Boaz to be able to step in and redeem Ruth and Naomi. The fifth principle of negotiation is know your goal. It's similar in some ways to what we were just talking about in terms of motivation. While it's a principle of negotiation, it might be better to think of this as the filter through which we evaluate the ethics, the motivations of our prudence, or maybe more simply put, what is the motivation as to what we're seeking in our actions here to this end? That may actually help determine whether our prudence is wise or just worldly. And so I want to look at the contrast between the motivations of these two redeemers in view here. You've got the nearer redeemer's goal or motivation, which Boaz suspected, which was to improve his financial situation. But then you see Boaz. It's very different. 
Boaz's goal wasn't financial, but it was to help Ruth and Naomi. And in fact, this decision uh, to help them would come at a cost to him. Put another way, the first redeemer's goal was to, pr- was to improve his capital situation. Boaz's goal was to spend his capital on the object of his love, which was Ruth. And in this way, the first redeemer functioned as a steward only, seeking to preserve, preserve and even grow what he had financially, whereas Boaz was a lover with his mother, money. Paul Miller says this at one point. He says, focusing exclusively on stewardship can unwittingly make preservation of money central. But God doesn't give us the resources he's given us, time and money and material possessions, primarily for preservation, but to spend on his mission in this world and his purposes in this world, namely on people and on loving other people. I, I want to be careful to say that saving uh, money and, and, and having a retirement and those types of things can be a, lie, a wise and loving and, and prudent thing to do. But I think oftentimes people save in the name of wisdom when the underlying motivation is preservation and security. And we have to be careful to know the difference in our own hearts. But not Boaz. Boaz spends his resources on the object of his love. This is a principle that's pervasive throughout God's word. We see it in the New Testament. It's near and dear and important to Jesus. He gives us a beautiful picture of how it plays itself out in the parable of the prodigal son. This is a a parable Jesus tells in which there's this father figure who's approached by one of his sons who asks for his inheritance early from the father. This, by the way, was unheard of in that culture you're only supposed to actually receive an inheritance from your father once your father dies. So this was very much an insult. It was as if this guy was saying to his father, I wish you were dead because I want what you have now. And the father gives him his share. He had every right to deny this guy. He had every right to disown this greedy son, even, for such an insult. But here's what we see. Clearly, this father's motivation was not stewardship was not the preservation of his resources. He suspected what was going to happen. He knew that this was probably going to be lost money. But his goal instead was to win his son back. He suspected the son would probably spend it all, and his hope and his prayer was that he would come to the end of himself, that he would come to a place of brokenness, that he would return to the father and be reconciled. Here's what the father understood. Unless the son came to this place of realizing his error while the father was still alive, this son could never be saved. This son had no hope. So the father risked losing a lot of money, which he did, but his goal was never the preservation of his wealth. His goal was the restoration of his relationship with his son. And that was worth everything to him. In the story of Ruth, the nameless redeemer that Boaz goes to, he's a steward. Boaz is a lover with his money. He's willing to absorb loss personally in order to gain the object of his love. So as we come to the end of this journey in our uh, walking through the book of Ruth, if you see nothing else, I want you to see the parallel between Boaz as Ruth's redeemer and Christ as yours. Boaz didn't keep what he had in order to steward his wealth. He spent what he had on the object of his love. Financially, It didn't make sense for him. 
From the world's perspective, it was a foolish decision for him to take on this additional responsibility and burden of people he would have to care for as well as land he would have to ultimately give away. But from Boaz's standpoint, he gained the object of his affections, even though it came at a cost to himself. Do you know that this is a picture of Christ's love for you and for me? Of what advantage was it for God to send his son to die? Of what advantage was it for Jesus to come into this world to live just to die a brutal death at the hands of sinful men? None. From the standpoint of what makes sense if you're seeking self-preservation. Heaven is far better than earth. Life is far better than death. These are the things that Jesus had before he came into this world in the incarnation. But God wasn't seeking self-preservation. He was seeking you and me. He emptied his bank account, per se, at the greatest cost to himself in order to gain the object of his love, the church. And it was worth it to him. So yes, Ruth is a book about the sovereignty of God over the circumstances of our lives and God's brilliance in bringing about those circumstances and working them so his plans work out and to his glory. Yes. But it's also a book about God's love for you, for me. The cost he's willing to pay to bring you back to himself. We saw it through Ruth's hesed love and leaving everything that was known and familiar to her to bind herself to a broken and bitter old woman who had no hope for a future. We saw in Boaz who condescended from his high position in society to redeem a woman from an enemy nation who had nothing to offer him in the way of material possessions or wealth. It's all a picture of Christ's love for us. It's a picture of a father who knowingly gave up much of his personal wealth in hopes that it would yield the fruit of repentance and restoration in his relationship with his son. It's a picture of a savior who didn't count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself, becoming a man who lived to die in order to save a world that he loved. It's a picture of God who showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners and enemies with him, Christ died for you and for me. It's a picture of God's hesed, loyal, one-way love for his people. So let's pray and give thanks that this is the kind of God who rules and runs the universe and who intimately cares about our lives. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful that you are, in fact, sovereign, in control. You are God of providence, working out the details um, of our circumstances and of this world in ways we often are not privy to or can see, ultimately for your good purposes, which in turn is for our good. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that nothing that is happening in our life is a mistake, as painful as that may feel or be at times, as hard as that is to understand. We identify with Naomi who went through great seasons of trial, wondering what it was all for, wondering whether her God had abandoned her, only to find out in the end, of course he didn't. He's always been a God of hesed love, and we thank you that you are that kind of God. We thank you, Father, that no matter what, we can know that like Ruth bonded herself to Naomi, you are there with us even when we don't deserve it. 
Father, I, I pray too for mercy for how easy it is to take this for granted, for how cheaply we can treat your Hesed love. There are some here today, perhaps who don't even know it, who are more like that unnamed redeemer who are caught up in the lie that they can find happiness and security and comfort through self-preservation. Would you free us from that lie, especially those who've never tasted here this morning, your hesed love. Soften hearts, open eyes, especially those of the stewards here this morning, only seeking to preserve, that need to repent and let your love in. Soften hearts and open eyes of the Naomi's here this morning who are in relationship with you but who've grown bitter and cold of heart. Help them to cling to faith even as she did as she headed back to Bethlehem, an act of repentance. Give them faith to continue to trust you in the midst of whatever trials they're going through. We thank you for this picture of your love and Ruth. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit you would apply it deeply, embed it deeply into our hearts especially as we head into a time of communion and receiving the work of your son on the cross, his death for our sins. May we receive that freshly this morning, humbly, with hearts that will continually be changed as we, as we receive the gospel new. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.